I want to bless more than we've had already. Well, we have a bit of a feast of scripture this morning um, as we carry on in uh, our study in Mark's gospel. Um, so let's just uh, bow hearts again and just commit this time of study to the Lord, shall we? Well, Father, we do just ask that you open our understanding, Lord, unblock our ears and our hearts from the things of you that we would receive, Lord, spiritually, the things that you have for us, that they would edify us, that they would cause us to grow, Lord, that we would be encouraged in our faith. Lord, we would realize that you have made this wonderful, incredible promise to be with us until the end of the world. And Father, as we consider this world and the things that are going on, Lord, so many are uncertain and unsure of their future. And Lord, we have this incredible rock which we stand on, this foundation, Lord, that will not shake, that will not crumble. And so, Father, as we continue our study, Lord, in this incredible gospel that Mark faithfully has given us, Father, we pray uh, that you would stir our hearts and draw us closer to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. In Amos chapter 3, verse 7, Amos records this. He says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. In other words, Everything that God is going to do, he reveals ahead of time to his servants. You know, and we see throughout scripture, prophecy. And I just want to just again clarify that the Bible doesn't predict future events. A lot of people think that's what prophecy is. There's some prediction about what might happen. That's not what prophecy is at all. See, the Bible foretells them. The Bible tells you in advance what is going to happen. It's not a guess about what might happen it's a statement of what will happen. And only God, who is outside of time, can do that. Now, we've been looking, as we've been going through this journey over the last few weeks, uh, at this kind of plan of, of Passion Week, uh, as we see Jesus arrive at Bethany on the Saturday evening, on Sabbath day evening, uh, and then the next day on the Sunday goes into Jerusalem to uh, go into the temple. And in the temple, we see, well, first of all, we see the, the triumphal entry and the Disciples and so on uh, laying their coats and palm leaves before Jesus. The uh, Jewish leadership getting very irate because of this. But Jesus goes into the temple, he sees money changers and turns the tables over. The Pharisees are there on that occasion. They get very cross and question his authority. And in the evening he goes back out to Bethany. The next day he comes in, sees a fig tree. But he's not bearing any fruit. Uh, curses a fig tree. Goes into the temple for the second time running. And again the money changers are back. This time the Pharisees are not there, but once again turns the tables over uh, and then again goes out uh, of the evening. And then we get to where we've been now for the last couple of weeks on the, the Tuesday. Um, so much takes place on this particular day. Um, and what we're going to see is something that we're very familiar with in one sense, because um, normally we tend to go to Matthew's Gospel um, for this particular portion of Scripture for our uh, understanding, but Mark gives us the same kind of information, uh, and Luke also, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more next week about the subtle differences between the information they present. But strictly speaking, is what we refer to as the Olivet Discourse. Okay, and this is this uh, statement that's made by Jesus uh, in response to the question that disciples ask him. It, it's the final major discourse or teaching, if you say, in the sense that Jesus gives his disciples. Uh, and the, the the crowd that are there, um, he gives this dramatic glimpse into the future. 
Uh, and these are the things that he covers, the destruction of the temple. Something that seemed a real shock to them at that time. We'll talk more as we go on. Um, but also spoke about a coming worldwide deception. And we're going to talk a bit about that this morning. And then also highlighting the events that must precede his second coming. Now next week we're going to go on to, to look at those things uh, in more detail. Lord willing. Um, but just to clarify, this is just 48 hours or so before Jesus will be crucified. You start to get the intensity of these things. You know, if you knew you had just 48 hours left, you would want to, to share things that are really close to you, things that are important. You wouldn't waste your time on trivial things. Uh, and Jesus, knowing the, the timeline, Jesus already knew that he was going to be the Passover lamb. That's why he'd come. That's why he was at Jerusalem. He'd been saying for the last six months to the disciples, right at the time, from the time up in Caesarea Philippi, all this journey down through Galilee, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day I'll rise again. And now he's here, just a couple of days away from this momentous situation where Jesus knew that he would be going to atone and pay for our sin. Interestingly, in Scripture we find that seven times reference is made to the new birth. Fifty times or so there's reference to baptism, to repentance. 300 times we find reference made to the end times. You get some idea of the importance of these things and the fact that we are supposed to know them. These aren't things that we should just shy away from and, and bury our head in the sand and say, well, it's, you know, I, I don't really understand prophecy and, and so on. Sadly, many do. Many are, are frightened to consider these things. In the New Testament, it's been estimated that one in every ten verses relates to the second coming that's incredible one in every ten verses relates in one way or another to the second coming a historian Gibbon stated this he said that the reality and imminence of the second coming of Christ had the most profound effect on the lives and conduct of the early church and there you go that's the reason why this is important because when we understand what is coming when we understand what is ahead of us it completely changes the way we live our lives you wouldn't go herring down a road if you knew at some point ahead of you there was some big sinkhole it would change the the method of your driving your, your approach to this particular thing and it's the same for us that we've been given this great explanation and, and uh, um, detailed uh, prophecy of all that is coming and it should have a profound impact on the way you and I live our lives. Because no longer is this world just you know, about us acquiring whatever we can acquire and getting by and so on. There becomes something so much bigger, so much greater. We realize we are part of God's plan, God's purpose. And every day, therefore, should be lived out in that knowledge getting ready for all that is yet to come. Things that the people in the world have no real understanding or knowledge of. So, with that in mind, let's jump into chapter 13, which is where we've got to, and we'll pick it up at the first verse. So Mark, chapter 13, verse 1. And actually, before we do that, just turn to Mark's Gospel with, with me. I just want to get to see, kind of get the idea of where we've been through this. Uh, and turn to chapter 11 in your Bibles of Mark, 
And if you go to verse 20, and you read there, it starts, and in the morning. This is Tuesday morning of this particular week. Okay, and this is uh, these things. They come in, they see the fig tree all withered and cursed and so on. And we go through those things, and they come to Jerusalem, and, and so on, the events that take place. Chapter 12, then Jesus gives his parable that we were looking at last time. This um, really trying to highlight the Jewish leadership, the way they'd rejected the prophets, and now they're rejecting Jesus, and so on. Then we go on from there. Uh, they try to trap Jesus. There's all these questions that are thrown at Jesus about um, should they should you give money to, to Caesar and so on. Um, and then the question about um, marriage in heaven and you know this hypothetical scenario is presented to him uh, by the Sadducees who don't believe in resurrection and that's all dealt with and so on. Um, and, and we go on and we get to the, the, the bit about the, the woman who puts in all that she has. Uh, and so on. Jesus asks them a question. You know, that is all taking place on this Tuesday. And now later on in the same day, we're still on the same day, Jesus now leaves the temple. So I, I don't know, I'm guessing we're probably about lunchtime on the Tuesday. You know, maybe they were heading off to, to eat something um, and to go sit on the, the Mount of Olives. Um, but this is just to give you the kind of context and the feeling. But they're heading out of the temple now. This is where they've been for the morning. And we're told that one of his disciples said unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Look at this impressive building. Look at the temple. Isn't it incredible? Isn't it wonderful? You know, I've had the, the opportunity and privilege over the years when um, friends and people I've met you know, have come to London to show them around. You know, you take them to certain places. You know, there's obviously you know, some landmark places you take them to. And, you know, the British Museum is a great place. It's a lovely building and, and so on. And we can spend hours in there. Um, I, I did a few years ago take my family and, uh, and joy. And I think the family got bored after about the first four hours. But I, I was loving it. Um, but there's lots of great things you do in London. And there's great places you can see. And these, these big buildings and monuments and so on. And, and, and we don't know which disciple said this, uh, we're not told. But it's that kind of same kind of excitement. Isn't this wonderful? But it's looking at the here and now. It's looking at what we've done, what we've accomplished. And I can tell you now, the, the response that comes back wasn't what was expected. But let's look first of all. This is the, the building, a, 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 a rendering, a, a, a recreation of what Herod's temple would have looked like. It was really impressive, a really incredible building. The stones, according to Josephus in Herod's temple, were some 50 foot by 20 foot by 16 feet. And they didn't need cement and things to, to stick them together. They were just so precisely cut and laid in place. It is phenomenal. It took around about 46 years uh, from John Chapter 2, verse 20, we get that uh, number to build this impressive building. And the whole temple had been overlaid with white marble and with these plates of gold everywhere. It was just truly staggering. Uh, and apparently it could be seen for miles away. And when the sun was shining on it, which typically it does a lot of the time in Israel and in Jerusalem, you could see it glistening for miles. Of course, Jerusalem sits on top of the hills, so people... As they were on their pilgrimages, on their ways up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, we'll be able to come up and they see this temple shining and glistening. That's another rendering. You get the idea of the temple and the courts and so on. 
I mean, this truly was some impressive building. But once again, it was man's effort. Incidentally, Solomon's temple, the design for it was given by God himself. And it's an interesting study, if you want to, to go and do this, to look at the details of the tabernacle and then compare them with the details and the design for the temple and then look at those in connection with the New Jerusalem. And you'll see there's a theme that runs through all of those. God has a particular design. and There's some interesting studies that can come out of that. But this incredible building, nonetheless. But Jesus answered and said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another. There shall not be thrown down. That wasn't the response this individual was expecting. You see, the disciples had grown up in a world where all things continue as they were. You know, these group of disciples hadn't really experienced kind of war or catastrophes or any of those kind of things. In their lifetime, everything had been fairly consistent. Politically, everything had been fairly stable. Rome was the dominant power at that time. And everything was fairly normal as far as they were concerned in their world. Now, we need to understand that we live such comparatively short lives that most of us are totally oblivious to the catastrophes that have befallen humanity. Now, of course, we can think of things like the flood, and we understand that the flood, of course, of which there's abundant evidence wherever you go in the world for the flood, as well as some 270 legends and stories around the world in almost every culture. You know, there's no real debating that the flood took place unless it's by people who just don't want to accept it because they choose to have some other misguided interpretation of our history, really not based upon anything other than opinion. No, the flood's got real good evidence to support it everywhere we go in the world. But that's just one of many catastrophes that we read about in Scripture. You know, we are definitely seeing more earthquakes. You know, um, maybe over the coming weeks as we, we'll talk about some of these other things, uh, we might mention that. But, you know, you can, you can just go and Google it, look at earthquakes. Now, in, in one sense, there is the element that, yes, we're recording and we're reporting better than we did previously. So we're going to see more from that perspective. But there really does seem to be a significant increase, not just in earthquakes in general, but in terms of the scale and the size of those earthquakes. But actually, you go back through history, and there have been some incredible earthquakes that have really caused incredible devastation that have changed the lives of the people. You know, there's all sorts of other things as well that we don't tend to consider. And when you go through the book of Psalms, you read that David and others speak about the the mountains and the hills skipping like rams, or like lambs. You know, is that just poetry or is there more in that? You know, the idea of the earth being shaken we don't tend to think of those things. I mean, that's for us kind of science fiction. But there's a lot of really strong, compelling evidence to show that what happened in the past, you know, throughout the history of this world, there's been a, a, a huge number of really large events that have been quite catastrophic and have changed cultures and circumstances beyond recognition. 
We could talk more about those things some other time. I haven't got time to dig into that this morning as much as I'd love to. There are lots of books. I've got a number of books. I've got some here. If you want to talk more, I'm happy to do so. Um, but the disciples, again, this was quite a big thing for Jesus to say, look, you know, everything you're looking at. I mean, imagine, imagine going to London, looking at, at um, you know, the Palace of Westminster, you know, and all that, that region of Westminster Abbey and Houses of Parliament and Big Ben, as it's affectionately known, Clock Tower. You know, somebody coming and saying, well, that's all going to be destroyed. Not a stone will be left on another. You'd be thinking, well, what could cause that? I mean, I know we're familiar with these kind of terrorist attacks and things like that have become part of our lives now in that sense. But it has to be something really big to do that. And we don't tend to get earthquakes in this country. Well, this is what Jesus is saying. That's the kind of scale. And the disciples seemingly, because of the question that comes, then assume that what Jesus is saying must indicate the end of the world, something that big of of that scale. And and there's also another element to this, that for these disciples, knowing now that they had returned from Babylonian captivity, they were in their land, there was this assumption that that's it, they were there now to stay. And that nothing was going to shake them, nothing was going to move them from the land. They finally had their temple, it was rebuilt. The next thing was for the Messiah to come and rule and reign. And so for Jesus to say that this temple is now going to be destroyed, again, just trying to understand how important a a statement, how big a statement this was to the disciples. Now, regarding the temple itself and the destruction of the temple, we know from history that after about a three-year siege, Jerusalem finally fell in 70 AD, some 38 years or so after these events that we're looking at right now in Mark's Gospel. Apparently what happened was that a torch had been thrown into the temple. It caused a fire that became so fierce that the gold literally on the walls and the panels and everything else started melting. And it kind of then ran all over the rocks and everything else. So the Romans, the soldiers, were instructed to take the temple apart, literally stone by stone, to recover the gold. So just as Jesus said, there wasn't a stone left upon another because they wanted to reclaim this gold. Now, apparently Titus had given the order originally not to destroy the temple. It was some magnificent building. No doubt he wanted it and quite possibly had intentions of using it for himself and for his own name and so on. But of course the temple was then destroyed. Apparently... Titus walked outside the city, threw his hands in the air and said, God, don't, don't hold me responsible for this. Funny, even these ungodly rulers had some concept of just how special this place was. <clears throat> you see, nothing that we build uh, is going to last. Nothing is made to last. I mean, it's a statement, isn't it, that you know, things that are built today, you know, oh, it's been made to last sure we could uh, get a good uh, lesson from Ash about buildings and, and how long they're actually intended to last uh, from all his studies he's done. But, you know, we saw recently, didn't we, that um, tragic situation uh, in Italy with that bridge that collapsed. You know, things don't last as long as maybe we'd like them to. You know, and it's called into question a number of structures around the world now that they're now being reviewed as to actually how long will they stand, how long will they last. Well, 
2 Peter 3, 10 and 11 says this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. Everything is going. Nothing will last forever. Nothing that man has made is going to survive. The whole of this, this world is going to be burnt up. And it says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? I see, once again, our understanding of these things is directly linked to the way we live our lives. And this is why there's so much in Scripture about the second coming of Jesus and the events that will surround it. In contrast, Isaiah 14 verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Human endeavor, everything we've made, that's going to fail. But the things that God has established, God's word, that will stand forever. Well, nevertheless, we read verse 3, that he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple. So gives you some indication that they come up out of the temple, they come down this little valley and then back up the other side and then they were sat there possibly having their lunch looking across again at the temple area as they sat on the Mount of Olives. If you spin that around and look at it from the other way you can just about see up here you can see the, the path that runs up that's typically the route there to come down only a few days before the triumphal entries that come down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem but now they've come up the other side and there's someone sitting up the top of that hill looking directly across. Just to give you an idea, this is obviously predating the time of Jesus, but during Solomon's time, that's how Jerusalem would have been. Okay, and the side that we're interested in is the side of the Mount of Olives here on the east side of Jerusalem. And you've got the Kidron Valley that runs through the, the middle there, with Jerusalem in the center, of course, and where the temple eventually was built. Uh, and then on the east side here is where the Mount of Olives was. So you get some idea of the geography of the area. So again, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, okay, so these four individuals, asked him privately. So no doubt concerned about what Jesus has said, but they said, tell us, when shall these things be? When is it that the temple is going to be destroyed? And that they link it immediately with what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled. Now in Matthew's gospel, he adds about his coming as well. What will be the sign of thy coming? So they're linking this directly with the end of this era, when the Messiah will establish his throne. Now, we're going to get the longest answer to a question in the New Testament in what follows. And there's really three questions. Is when will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of parousia? That's the Greek word that's used in Matthew's Gospel. And really, the word means um, advent or coming. What will be the sign of your returning? And what will the sorry? And when will the end of this age come? Those are really the questions that are being asked. Now, Jesus is going to give a whole bunch of signs of things to expect and things to, to look out for. One of them is false messiahs. We're going to see a, a plethora of people coming on claiming to be Christ. Now, we've already seen in our lifetime a bunch of people, uh, cult leaders and so on, that claim some sort of Christ-like status. But they're very easily dismissed because it's very easy to see from the outside that these individuals are not what they claim to be. And yet, we're going to find that there are going to be people coming that are going to make these kind of claims and people will follow after them. Now, this will occur 
before the middle. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about Daniel's 70th week. This last week of that prophecy that Gabriel gives Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. There's going to be a period of seven years. In the middle of that seven years, this individual who we know as, or affectionately know as Antichrist, actually the, the, ter- the title really means in one in place of Christ. Anti, not in the sense of being against, although of course he is against, but in, pl- in the place of Christ. And he's going to allow Israel to start their sacrifices again which necessitates the temple being rebuilt. So one of the things we're expecting to see, not only the Jews returning to the land, as Adrian was saying earlier, but when they're in their land, the temple to be rebuilt. If you go to Israel right now, you can go to the Temple Institute, you can see there they've already manufactured the priest's clothing, and they've got the table of showbread, they've got the menorah, they've got all the the artifacts and the things they need to commence the sacrifices again. They're just waiting for the opportunity now to rebuild the temple. So that's one of the things we're looking for. And it will be in this temple that halfway through this period of seven years that's coming, Antichrist is going to desecrate it. He's going to put his own image in there and so on. And Israel are going to be forced to flee. So we've got this false Christ that will come along culminating in this Antichrist. False prophets also will come prophesying all sorts of things before the middle of this week, this seven-year period. There's going to be wars and there's rumours of wars. And we'll unpack this a little bit more next time as to what these things actually really really mean. Nations against nations. Again, these are those phrases, by the way, they actually come from Isaiah. And we'll look at them next time. We're told that there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes. Persecution of the Jews by all nations. And we're seeing that again becoming more and more apparent. I mean, how many days over... In the last six months, have you opened up a newspaper and you've seen some article about anti-Semitism? You know, often on the front page. There'll be many offences, betrayals. We'll talk more about this subsequently. But we're also told the iniquity will increase. Love of many is going to grow cold, we're told. We're told well, as we go on, we'll explain what these things really mean in the context. And, that the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached as a witness to all nations. See God's grace even in the midst of all these things. This abomination of desolation that Daniel speaks about is going to be set up. These are the things that Jesus is going to go on to say in a moment. Israel will be forced to flee into the wilderness, to this place that God has prepared. And it's going to be a time of great tribulation. Now... Again, as I said already, we're kind of used to everything being the same. We wake up in the morning and we expect everything to be the same as it was yesterday. But for many throughout history, that's not been their experience. And we're going to get to a time where we will be not here, the church will be gone, raptured. But for those that are left, it will be a real time of tribulation. There's no better word for it. Every day they wake up, they won't know what's coming next. There's going to be, again, false messiahs uh, after the middle of the week as well. We'll see these things. And false prophets, so specifically a false messiah and a false prophet. And also we're told about the conditions as, in, as it was in the days of Noah being repeated. And that has some very interesting uh, connotations. Again, particularly for, for right now where we are. The things that we see going on in the world. Lots of fearful sights as we distress on the earth. 
And there'll be great signs in the heavens, we're told. So those are the kind of things. And then Jesus says in verse 5, Jesus answering, saying, sorry, answering them, began to say, take heed. Okay, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples, saying, watch out. Take heed, be careful, lest any man deceive you. Now, I want to pause at this point this morning before we go on and look at all those other kind of things, which we'll get to next week, Lord willing. Because there's this almost untalked about um, feeling that we won't be deceived. You and I are above deception. You know, we read about these things and there's this kind of deception that we can't be deceived. But the truth is, we are all capable of being deceived. There is so much about deception in Scripture and the danger. Uh, Matthew 7, look at this, verse 13 through 15. Enter you at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And notice what we're told. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life. And few there be that find it. And then we're told, Jesus says, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravening wolves now for most of the world they're not bothered about false prophets they're not bothered about any prophets these warnings are more for those in the church now than those outside notice this contrast between the many and the few in 2 Peter in chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 it says but there were false prophets also among the people speaking of Israel amongst the nation and we'll look at this in, in a moment. Even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Okay, what Peter's saying is that the way of truth is going to be spoken of as being evil, as being wrong. And that all these ideas are going to be coming in and flooding the church that we would follow after these things. Now we've seen so many things over the last few years. We had the whole prosperity gospel thing. We've seen the emergent church. And they have impacted. They have. They've caused all sorts of problems. But I think they're just the tip of the iceberg. I think we can expect to see a lot more. And the reason I say that is because it's happened before. If we go back to the time of Jeremiah. Jeremiah referred to as the weeping prophet. I always take great comfort in Jeremiah because he was the least successful prophet of them all, I think. But we don't measure what we do by success. We measure it by obedience. And in that case, Jeremiah was one of the greatest prophets of all. You see, it's not about success. It's not about the results that we perceive. It's not about how many people Jeremiah converted or convinced. It's about Jeremiah being faithful to God. And that's a much better measure for us to use. But see, Jeremiah went through a time just like we are going into now. Just to give you the common context of these things, they're the kings of Judah laid out and the time that Jeremiah was prophesying is that time down the bottom of this side really from the time of Josiah 
through Jehoahaz just for three months on the throne. Then Jehoiakim for 11 years. Jehoiachin for just three months before he was taken away. And then finally Zedekiah for 11 years. That's the, the period of time that Jeremiah was breaking his heart over the nation. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we read that God had called Jeremiah. It says, the word, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. This is Jeremiah's job that God is giving him to do. Jeremiah responds and says, Then I said, oh, Lord God, behold, I can't speak, for I'm a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, says the Lord. And then the Lord, verse 9, says, Put forth his hand and touch my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over nations and over kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. Well, those last two sound nice. If, if the job was, I'm going to send you out to, to nations, to kings, go and stand before kings, and your job is to build things, to plant. Yeah, that's great. But imagine as a young man being sent before kings of other nations, and your message, message is that your kingdom is going to be destroyed, going to be pulled down, destroyed, and thrown down. That's, a, that's a kind of a tough one. But this is what the Lord gave Jeremiah to do, and Jeremiah supremely faithful in serving God. Although he had a few wobbles, he still was very faithful. A few moments where he said, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. Verse 11, Moreover the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? Jeremiah, seeing a vision. And I said, I I see a, a rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast seen well, for I will hasten my word to perform it. The idea of the almond tree of when it, when it was budding was that it's going to happen quickly. This is what the Lord is saying to Jeremiah. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, What seest thou? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is toward the north. Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north an evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. So God warning Jeremiah, the judgment was coming, and it's going to happen quickly. The same thing's true for us. The judgment is coming upon this world, and it's going to happen very quickly when it begins. Verse 15, we carry on. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord, and they shall come, and they shall set everyone his, uh, his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all the walls thereof round about, and against all the cities of Judah, and I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness, who have forsaken me, and have burnt incense unto other gods, and worshipped the works of of their own hands. Notice what the Lord says here. The judgment is going to come on a whole multitude of people, but look at the reasons. They've forsaken me. This is people that should have known God, that they've turned away from God. And they've burned incense to other gods. God hates this. It's almost, almost better to be just a pagan and no real desire for anything godly at all than to be in a position where you've known God and then turned away from God and worshipped other gods and burned incense to them. And notice also what they're told, and they've worshipped the works of their own hands. Well, this is just one 
example of website. This was some years ago, but this stuff is, is still out there. You go Google it, you'll find it all over the place. This alternative worship was referred to. Supposed to be Christian. And it's got a, a list there on their webpage of ingredients for worship. And they can have word-based ingredients, such as poems, prayers, meditations, song lyrics, incantations, chants, responses. Really? I don't find that in the Bible. Symbol-based ingredients for their worship. Video in, in Scripture is in there, it's on the list. On paper, in gesture, dance, and artifacts. But action-based ingredients... Including things like circus arts, juggling, fire breathing. Soul, uh, sorry, sound-braced ingredients, backing tracks, background music, sound effects, and all sorts of other things. Amongst the list is Bible reading. Vision-based ingredients. Again, videos and pictures and all sorts of things to stimulate the senses. Imagination-based ingredients. There's guided fantasies, thinking, drawing, composing in real time, meditations again, and praying. Praying to who? About what? And then the last one there is anointing, laying on the hands, incense, holding stones and other natural objects, and so on. You see, that's just one example, but there are people out there claiming to be Christian that are doing these things. And this is far more widespread. This is one of the extremes. But this is far more widespread than any of us would like to probably think about. There are churches even in our vicinity, and I guarantee you will be getting into some of these things. What is it that God says? The people have forsaken him. They've burned incense to other gods, and they've worshipped the work of their own hands. This was going on in Jeremiah's day. God was warning Jeremiah to warn the people of these things, and we need to be aware that the same thing's happening. Jeremiah chapter 2, God says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not yet sown. God says that Israel were like a bride-to-be. They were joined together this time of espousal. Exactly what we read about for the church in Ephesus. And to the angel of the church of Ephesus, this, this letter that Jesus writes in Revelation. These things says he that holds seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And he goes on and says, Nevertheless, I have someone against thee because thou hast left thy first love. You see, let's get this in context of what we're saying this morning. In Mark 13, Jesus is warning the disciples that deception is coming. And you don't have to tick every box to be deceived. You could have just one area. And one of the problems that was going on in Jeremiah's day is people that had, had left their first love. They'd left the love of God. Other things had become more important. But what about us? What about the distractions around our lives? Jeremiah 2 verse 8, The priests said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. These are the, the leaders of the churches, if you like. In Jeremiah's day, it was the, the leaders of the nation, the spiritual leadership. They, they, they weren't inquiring of God anymore. They weren't going and seeking God. They were supposed to know what the law said and they didn't. 
I've read this a number of times in the past, but it just again illustrates the problem. I dread to think what the responses are today. But this was back in 2002, a poll that was conducted in America. Um, a sociologist um, um, commissioned this work. Uh, it showed that many had left the church because they no longer believed that the Bible is the absolute word of God. And this survey was done with 7,441 ministers by this uh, individual, Jeffrey Hayden. And I'm just going to go through the percentage of those ministers. Okay, These are those that are leading churches who answered no to the following questions by denomination. I'm not trying to attack any denomination, just showing you the, the depth of the problem. Do you accept Jesus' physical resurrection as a fact? You remember that Paul says is the bedrock and the foundation of our faith, without which we are all men most miserable? Of Methodist ministers, 51%, just 51%, said they accepted Jesus' physical resurrection as a fact. Episcopalian, it was just 35%. American Baptist, only 33%. Presbyterian ministers, just 30%. American Lutheran, 13%. Yes, this is American, it's not this country, but I can guarantee you it's not going to be much different over here. Question, do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus? Only 60% of Methodist ministers said they did. 49% of Presbyterian, 44% Episcopalian, 34% American Baptist, 19% of American Lutheran, Lutheran believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. And the last question, do you believe the scriptures are the inerrant work of God in faith, history and secular matters? Ninety-five percent of Episcopalian ministers answered no to that. 87% of Methodist ministers answered no to that question. 82% of Presbyterian ministers answered no. They don't believe that the scriptures are the inerrant work of God in faith and history and secular matters. And 77% of American Lutherans said no as well. And 67% of American Baptists all ministers. These are people out there leading the churches. And the vast majority do not believe the Bible is the word of God. They do not believe it's inerrant. And they do not believe it's the final word. Jeremiah 8 verse 9 goes on and says, The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. You see, in Jeremiah's day, God is saying, Look, your wise men have rejected God's word. So what wisdom do they have? They're only wise because of God's word. Outside of God's word, they have nothing. And the same problem as we've just seen exists right now. It goes on, Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid, be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. For they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters... And have hewed them, out, hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The word of God is consistently used in this context with, with uh, an, as water as an idiom of the word of God. The washing of water by the word we read about in Ephesians. And in Jeremiah's day, people were being rebuked. The judgment was coming because they'd forsaken God, they've forsaken that pure water. 
and they dug for themselves these cisterns, broken cisterns that can actually hold no water. We have over 200 translations of the Bible in English, all apparently designed to make it easier to read and understand, and yet we have the most biblically illiterate generation imaginable. I'm sorry, but all those translations have not helped. In fact, they've done the opposite. They've turned more people away from the Word of God. I just want to just, just highlight a few things here, and I'm not trying to attack any particular group, individual, or whatever. I'm just highlighting this. This scholar's version, which is a translation of the five Gospels, <laughs> including the Gospel of Thomas, the, the bit I've underlined, you might not be able to see it there, is that finally they studied, debated, and voted on each of more than 1,500 sayings in the inventory. So we've got men deciding by vote what Jesus did or didn't say. And this is then put out there as a translation of the Bible. Well, this is a broken system. It can't hold water. The New Testament, an understandable version. You know, down at Creation Fest the last two, a few years, when I've been on the, the stand for Carriage Chapel UK, we're selling the, the books and the things we have in the back, so many times people have come up saying, oh, I'm looking for a, a, a translation of the Bible, something that's easy to read. Well, when those people go around, because we, didn't, we, didn't, we only have, you know, King James and, and so on, but when people had gone around the other stalls and they found other versions and they see something that says an understandable version, oh, that sounds good, doesn't it? Look, notice what that underline says. It says, the text does not guarantee to be exactly what the Holy Spirit inspired the original writers to record, but rather represents what he, the translator, understands those writers to be saying. I mean, what a dreadful statement that you put something in print implying this is what God has said but actually it's what I think he might have meant for the NIV one of the most popular versions in the world today there's a statement that the New Testament has come from the best current Greek New Testament text that's not true that, that, that is absolutely a lie. They have not come from the best text. They've come from the Alexandrian manuscripts. Alexandria in Egypt was a hotbed of Gnosticism, of heresy. They denied the deity of Christ. And you see it sadly coming through. Another version, the inclusive version. Uh, the languages into which the Bible is rendered are changing. It is new manuscripts are discovered that are older and more reliable. What they're doing is finding maybe manuscripts that have supposedly been discovered and therefore they, they put aside that which we've had through the ages, that which has been tested and proven. I encourage you to look at Bill Cooper's book on the back, uh, the back table there, The Forging of the Codex Sinaiticus, I'll mention more in a moment maybe. But This uh, book, the uh, Renovare Spiritual Formation Bible. This hit the headlines some, I don't know, 10 years ago, I suppose. And lots of churches were buying into this and thinking this is great. One individual put a comment on the, 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 the webpage saying, we use this book for a, uh, a gift for high school uh, graduate and we will use it again with future graduates. And it's also recommended by our pastor. Really? The commentary is excellent for young people. Seeking to make their way through the world in a way that's pleasing to God. 
In this book, in this supposed Bible, it classes Genesis 1 to 11 as Hebrew myth. That's everything about creation. That's everything that we build the foundation of Scripture on. The foundation of marriage. All of those things, apparently, were just myth. And the pastor's recommending this to be given to young people trying to find their way in the world. In um, a particular modern translation, which can remain nameless, Matthew 2, 7 through 11 has this portion of scripture. I'm not going to read it all, but verse 9 says, After this interview, the wise men went their way, um, and the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. Anybody got a problem with that? Should have. It's a complete distortion of the text. First of all, it wasn't an interview. And Bethlehem? Look at the King James. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Can you please tell me in that verse where it actually says Bethlehem? It doesn't. They've inserted it. Why? Because they think that's what it meant. I can guarantee you this particular version is full of horrendous mistakes where the translators have put in things they think largely because of tradition scripture men and they have ruined and destroyed so many things there is no mention of Bethlehem in verse 9 and let me ask the question is that important does it really matter well yeah because the Magi never went to Bethlehem see following the birth of Jesus after 8 days we're told Jesus was circumcised After 41 days, Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord according to the law. That's where they met Simeon and Anna. And then they returned home to Nazareth. Why would they have gone back to Bethlehem? They didn't live there. Their home was Nazareth. Which is what scripture tells us in Luke 2.39. That when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. They didn't go to Bethlehem, and yet you've got a Bible there that people will be trusting that says completely the opposite. There's more issues surrounding that that we've got time to go into this morning. This from another modern translation. It says, I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testified that he's the chosen one of God. It's got a footnote that says, some manuscripts read the Son of God. Is that important? Even a nine-year-old could spot the problem because two years ago when Marla was nine, I asked her the question and she could see the difference between the chosen one of God and the son of God. I think you can see the difference there. Another modern translation. For For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, goes on. Being saved is what a modern version of the Bible states. Isn't the message of the cross that it is finished? That when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are saved? Didn't Jesus offer one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God? That's what Hebrews 10, 12 states. Well, if you look at that verse in the King James, it says this, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved, and in the Greek that's the tense is the present the voice is passive, the mood is participle. In other words, the only way you can translate that is are saved. You can't make it being saved without distorting the text. And yet that is exactly 
what a modern version, in fact, a number of modern versions have done with the text. And that can lead to all sorts of issues and problems. There's absolutely no justification for that. I don't understand how any translators, scholars, can do that unless there is another agenda going on here. This is a claim, this is staggering. This is in the RSV. It says, yet the King James, this is in the introduction, has grave defects by the middle of the 19th century. The development of biblical studies and discovery of many manuscripts, more ancient than those upon which the King James Version was based, made it manifest that these defects are so many and so serious as to call for revision of the English translation. That's their statement. Because the King James has grave defects. So many and so serious. And they, they appeal to this more ancient manuscripts, saying that it's better. Now, clearly someone's wrong. Because the RSV was the first real modern translation that we have. We now know that those older manuscripts that it refers to are nothing but corruptions. And actually... The Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus are much later forgeries. Seemingly, and this is the claim that Bill Cooper makes, they were set up and done intentionally by the Roman Catholic Church to stop people reading scripture. And the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus have become the backbone to every modern version of the Bible. It was a Vatican-inspired forgery to stop people reading Scripture. There's issues we could go on. Talk about the changes from single to plural and so on. I mean, there are literally, in, in today's NIV, that's not the NIV, that's today's NIV, it's another new translation. There's 2,000 changes from single to plural. Both Jesus and Paul build doctrinal points on those issues. And yet 2,000 times it changes single to plural. There's 1,600 gender changes. And these are not insignificant things. I, I'm going to skip through some of this stuff. There's a whole bunch of things that we could go into. Let me just, just read. read. <laughs> In the Good News Version, is, the blood of Christ is the most important and precious word and theme. It was lacking in many new te- key New Testament references And it was replaced by death or costly sacrifice. Both good words in their own place, but not what the Holy Spirit gave in the original text. I'm sure you're familiar with the Message Bible. Eugene Peterson there said uh, in uh, his translation of Romans 15, 13. Again, this is put out there as a Bible. Oh, may the God of green hope fill you up with joy and fill you up with peace so that your believing lives filled with the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit will brim over with hope. God of green hope? Really? That is never a title given to God in Scripture. You've got to realize that we have a serious, serious problem. And I'll leave a, a bunch of this stuff in the, in the slides if you want to dig into it and have a look a bit more at some of this stuff. Um, even between Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, there's over 9,000 differences. Jeremiah 2, let's just move on, because that's just one area where deception is creeping in. And think people, you know, it started off with a few little mistranslations. Now we've got blatant things put in the text that are, are wrong. Uh, yet I have planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How, thou, how then art thou turn into a degenerate plant, a strange vine? You see, it's become something other than it should have been. Uh, we've got exactly the same thing. I'm not going to read all this because of the sake of time. Matthew 13. 
It talks about this parable where we have this mustard seed becoming a tree, becoming something it shouldn't have been, and the, the ministers of Satan lodging in the branches. Exactly what happened with the church. It speaks in Jeremiah 2.22 of these people becoming uncleansable. I mean, in contrast to what we read in Isaiah where God says that though your sins be as scarlet, you'll be as white as snow. And the difference to the two there is the repentance. If there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. And people are just going off now. And these, these things are coming in. Jeremiah spoke of this. He says, as a thief is ashamed when he's found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, and their prophets. Well, Revelation 3 3, a very similar statement to that. Again, the idea that these things are, are coming quickly and take a lot of people by surprise. You know, back in Jeremiah's day, believe it or not, there were people that were worshipping tree trunks, they were worshipping stones and saying, This is where we came from, attributing their origins to these things. Well, we've got, of course, the myth of evolution that's taken hold so much. Recently, the Church of England, a few years back now, apologised to Darwin for misrepresenting him. Again, it says that in in Jeremiah's day, it says, but in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. And that's the same cry that Matthew 7 records of those that have done wonderful works Oh, their churches were overflowing. They looked like they were doing the right thing. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils? There are many wonderful works, and then I will profess something that I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. They were also said that they've not sinned in all the things they've done. And yet we see this the same with the, with the apostate church. Yeah, Revelation seven, uh, sorry, Revelation three, uh, the seventh church, church of Laodicea, because I say as I am rich and increase with goods and and so on. Just as First Timothy said, you know, these people have become past feeling. And I'm sharing this with you because Jesus makes the point that one of the biggest things that will come in these last days is deception. I'm going to just skip through. We, we could go on all morning. You know, there's a lot of parallels between the time of Israel in Jeremiah's day and the time that we're going through right now. There was deception. That deception was coming very largely through the church. Let's just go through. You know, in Jeremiah's day, there was the warning that judgment was coming. That there was going to be, in fact, let me just go back to that previous verse and read that to you if I can. We'll end there. Right, Jeremiah 4, 5 and 6. Declare you in Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say, blow you the trumpet in the land. Cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the defense cities. Set up the standard towards Zion, retire, stay not. For I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. God calling his people to get out of there. You see, again, the declaration that judgment is coming, a trumpet is going to be blown, a cry to gather together. I urge you to read Psalm 54 and 5 for that. And the faithful then depart for the defense cities. I think that's a picture of the rapture. There is a way of escape, and Luke's gospel gives us this confirmation 
that after all these things that are going to come upon the, the earth, that there is a way of escape for those that put their trust in Jesus Christ. People, please be careful because one of the biggest warnings we see through the New Testament is the, the warning about deception coming in and deceiving people that love God. There is so much we could go through. I've got so many more slides here. And I cut out an awful lot. Joy will tell you. She said, are you going to be finished? I said, yeah, 10 minutes. And about an hour and a half later, I said, a bit longer. There's so much. And, and there's so much that's been going on as well uh, behind the scenes. You know, just, just one very quick thing, if I can. A friend of mine, a colleague at work, he's a Baptist minister. I've been training uh, to go through. There's a real issue at the church because... They've just appointed as the, the head of the area now a bisexual individual. And half of the church last Sunday didn't turn up. Because they heard there was going to be rumours that the church were going to protest about this, they brought some security guards to make sure nothing happened that shouldn't. And then they addressed the congregation with children in the midst of the, the congregation talking about the whole issue of why it's acceptable to have a bisexual minister now looking after them and ministering to communion to them and things like that. It's an absolute shambles. And there are many now that are talking, talking of leaving the church. But sadly, there'll be some that will be talked into staying. And they'll sit under that ministry. And this is a group of people that do not love the word of God. And I know because my colleagues told me some horror stories about when he was going through his training, what they said to him about the Bible and how they regard the scriptures as just, you know, useful for readings on Sundays, basically. But it has no benefit or value for our life and it certainly doesn't give us a plan of how we should live our lives. That's going on right now. So, look, as I say, we could go on much longer. I'm not going to. Um, I'll leave I'll leave all these slides in the notes if you want to they'll be up online later on uh, take a look through you'll see some of the stuff that's gone and some of the comments that certain individuals have made we are entering into a time of deception greater than we've ever seen before and the big mistake any of us can make is to assume that we are not going to be deceived we have to keep our eyes on scripture we have to make sure that we are reading the right scripture to start with and not these perversions that are coming on and keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for this opportunity just to consider these things. And Lord, we thank you that you gave that warning to your disciples all those years ago to take heed, Lord, that deception is coming. That many will come in your name. Many will come seeming to be very sincere, very genuine, very godly. And yet, Lord, there is a sinister plan behind all of these things to pull people away from you and into the pit of hell. Father, we pray, Lord, for us here this morning that you would help us to remain vigilant, that your word of God alone will be the standard. Not what any one of us says, feels, or thinks, but your word alone. May we stand upon your word. Give us, Lord, the humility to accept and admit if we're wrong on any issue regarding things we thought we knew. And Lord, to seek you with whole hearts, with pure hearts. And Lord, as we grow together, may we know your blessing. Lord, help us also to reach out to those that are being caught up in these things, to show your love and your grace in gentleness. Lord, just showing them the danger of these things.
thank you, Lord, for your love for us, which is so great that it is with us to the end of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go and fellowship together over some teas and coffees. God bless you.